Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, March 27th. Yes, it is not the 28th. Yet again, I messed up on the date of my blog post, but those of you who are here obviously figured it out. Our special guest is Alec Koros. Alec, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks very much, Steve. And you're a seasoned uh, Illuminate Collaborate veteran, so we don't have to do anything for you there. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. These are a set of activities that I coordinate around uh, providing places of conversation for teachers and learners. We express appreciation to Blackboard Collaborate for providing this room. So we are having the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0 this year, uh, fifth anniversary for a lot of people in social media. Uh, we're now at 65,000 members. It's been just a blast. And as a part of that, we're doing two projects, well, two of several projects, but one is uh, an ed incubator program helping uh, different educational initiatives get authentic teacher councils. So uh, PBS NewsHour is doing this. Uh, and you can go to classroom20.com and click on Ed Incubator. We also have a book project, and this has been a blast. So this is a crowdsourced uh, book, Classroom 2.0 of the book. Uh, every submission will get published. Uh, we are going to select, of, of those who get published online, we are going to select the most popular and put them into an actual physical book. Um, but lots of fun coming up. The deadline for that, for submissions for that, is April 21st. But do go up to the book in the menu at classroom20.com and check it out. As well, we have the great activities around the ISTE conference. Uh, we're now branding everything ISTE Unplugged. It's all of the alternative activities that we do at ISTE, including the all-day Saturday Unconference, which has in the past been called EduBloggerCon, and is now being called Social EdCon. This is free. You don't even need to be registered for ISTE to attend. We just got today final permission to hold a three-hour Global Education Summit on Sunday in a similar format. And we have lots of other really fun things going on. Of course, the Bloggers Cafe and our ISTE Live, which is if you've never presented at ISTE or you didn't get accepted, you can still present and we will still broadcast it. Lots of fun. Go to ISTEUnplugged.com. Um, and we have announced the Social Learning Summit. So this is on April 21st, Saturday. It's uh, from 9 to 3 Eastern Standard Eastern Daylight Time in the US. Uh, we are accepting proposals now to speak tonight. We'll start actually accepting proposals, but you can still submit proposals up till April 7th. Um, this is really going to be fun. 30-minute sessions. Discovery Education is the sponsor of this. They're going to be using it as their spring virtual conference. Uh, it will be virtual. It will be free. We sure hope you'll consider either presenting or participating. Um, in October, our Future of Libraries conference will be its second year. Uh, it's at library2012.com. Our Global Education in its third year, uh, November 12th to 16th, and that's globaledcon.com. And then we have two conferences that we're waiting dates for. One is a gaming and education conference, and the other is an alternative education conference. All virtual, all free, lots of fun. Hope you'll stay tuned for those. Coming up on the Future of Education Thursday, Gail talks to us about appreciative inquiry and positive deviance, tools for uh, helping uh, educational environments better themselves. Uh, in fact, uh, very similar to the humanitarian work, Alec. Uh, both of those uh, processes are used in humanitarian work. Howard Rheingold on the third talks about his new book, NetSmart. Joseph Grenny, uh, one of the co-authors of Crucial Conversations, Change Anything, comes on to talk about vital behaviors, sources of influence, and how we make change. 
anyway, you can see lots of fun there um, coming up. Hopefully something that's of interest to you. I sure enjoyed doing them. I hope you enjoy participating. If you've missed the show, they're all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate or Illuminate form, plus MP3. We talked to David Warlick uh, last week. Kathy Davidson talked about her new book, Now You See It. Uh, Mimi Ito, lots of fun. Anyway, all up at futureofeducation.com. So we're going to give you a chance now to indicate where you're participating from. Look for the icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star icon. It's the second one down. And you have to double click it and click on the map. And feel free to shout out in the chat. Let us know where you're participating from. Regular listeners will know that I'm in Park City bemoaning the fact the snow is disappearing. Worst precipitation in decades, they say, which means the skiing has been erratic. Looks like a couple of Australia. Thank you for being up. South America. I'm. Help me understand where that is. I'm thinking Guyana. But my geography of that part of the world is not as good as I would like it to be. Wherever you're participating from, we sure appreciate having you here. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for joining us. Alec, this really is fun for me. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, I, I invited you with the idea that we would uh, talk about social learning, but clearly uh, the, the phrase open teaching is probably a more prominent one in the work that you do, although I think the two are quite closely related. Um, uh, tell us what you mean by open teaching and why you think it's important. Oh, OK. Um, so now I've got probably somewhere. I've got a bit of an echo there. Is that your microphone? Oh, sorry. I'll turn okay. it off. Oh, no problem. Um, I think the, the term open teaching, I think I've, I've written some papers on this. And uh, I have sort of a, a regular definition out there. But I think really looking at the idea of open teaching is starting to not only uh, do more things than be open as an educator. So for instance, I teach open courses. Um, I, I allow my students to also teach uh, and learn in the open. So uh, my students will have blogs. I, I allow them to connect to others. And I certainly uh, I want them to connect to others. Um, but it's not, it's not just about teaching, I think, in the open and being transparent and collaborative and social in your teaching and encouraging that in others. But it's also looking at some of the power relationships, I think, in, um, you know, if you're going to look at a dichotomy, I think, between sort of proprietary systems versus um, more open systems. <clears throat> and a lot of my, uh, I guess, my original thinking comes from the open source software movement, looking at how people created um, systems, operating systems such as Linux or GNU Linux, if you want to be more specific, um, Firefox, a number of other open source projects, even looking at things like Moodle, and looking at collaborative environments and how people actually solve problems across networks with very loose um, kind of connections. And I think you're starting to see that. Where I saw that 10 years ago, 
um, in open source software movements. Now I see it on Twitter quite often. You know, problem solving uh, over time um, with very loose connections. It looks like there's some trouble with that link. <coughs> But I guess so. Open teaching is not just about teaching in the open, being more transparent, being an open scholar, looking for open source, um, or, you know, as a as an educator, looking for open access journals and that sort of thing. But also being an advocate of these spaces, being an advocate of the idea that knowledge should be free, that knowledge should be social, uh, at least certainly socially constructed, um, and available to more people. And I and I think throughout the the last part of my career, I think that's been a really really important to me that it starts with open teaching, that if we have more open teachers, that if we have more people continuing to push the agenda for openness and transparency in how we learn, I think that, um, that, that we can build together sort of a, a better society in many ways. So that's kind of the overall sort of definition of that, but I can get more specific into what that looks like uh, later on in the conversation if you like as well. Well, I think you wrote two blog posts. Um, one was your original sort of um, uh, deep dive into this, and then the next one was a, a, a revisit of the topic based on feedback you had gotten. But in both cases, it feels like you're making the point that it's not about the technology, but the technology has kind of opened the door or helped us to see the potential. So how important a period of time historically do you think this is? I mean, is this just another technology that we think is going to make a difference, which will end up not? or do, you know, do we really have the seeds here for significant change? Well, I, I think there are a number of things that have changed. Um, I was looking at, I wonder, I'll see if I can try to find the video. It's in my YouTube playlist. If, if anyone wants to see it, what my playlist like in, on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash corose, C-O-U-R-O-S-A. And I'm actually, actually going to look at my favorites. And I just want to show this as an example. And you don't have to watch it, but uh, it's worthwhile just looking at it. And if, you, if, if uh, just to give you a description, you may have seen it on Twitter in the last few days. Um, let me just see if I can find my favorites here. And then we can put this in the show notes or whatever else works here. Uh, let's see if I can find this. If I can't, that's fine. It was a, it was a, it was a grade four girl sitting on top of a ski hill. Here it is. I actually found it. Surprised that I can do that. And uh, if you ever get a chance to watch this, um, it's really quite interesting. It's a grade four girl sitting on top of a ski hill. And she's talking to herself, and you have to listen to the audio. And it looks like a scary thing, even for an adult, to attend, kind of look, being looking down at the ski hill. But she's obviously got a webcam on her head, or one of those—not a webcam, but a um, uh, sort of one of those helmet cams that people use in sports and that sort of thing. And she's talking to herself, encouraging herself. You can see her sort of hear a parent or someone encouraging themselves in the background. And I'm just, just I've watched this a number of times. I'm thinking about what this actually means. Oh, we might as well let it play. It looks like it's playing in the window. That is so fun. Isn't that, that, is really, that is really right around the corner from me. I'm sitting here nursing a completely hammered shoulder from yeah. being somewhat equally brave and not succeeding. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> but I love, the, I love yeah. the shift in her. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what, what's really nice about that, and I was talking about this with my undergrads, is thinking, like, when you say the technology doesn't change, and we could have the you know, the tools, um, you know, it's not the tools or it, it is the tools sort of conversation. But when you look at that, 
if you think about your own childhood and the, the many things that we've gone through, the transformations, the things, the decisions we've made, the things that we did wrong, the things that we learned, but now we can actually record that. Just to think, you know, the first time that I went down that high ski hill, I have no recollection of that to really any great extent. Where this person not only has a direct recollection of the things that she said, the encouragement that she got, she put it on YouTube and she gets 1.4 million at, at this point. And it's just amazing to ca capture that, the transformation that you know what was actually happening in your head because you can catch so much of that. And I just absolutely love that example, and that to me is sort of what we do in these open spaces. We we do it obviously over a different time, but there's so much of that. There's the risk taking. There's the vulnerability. There's the capturing our learning process. Um, I'm doing. Dean Chereski actually started this in one of the classes we teach together. We do something called the Learning Project, where we actually have students learn something outside of like the, the courses around social media, uh, social media and, and technology integration. But they are to take something out there that they wanted to learn, whether it's a guitar or a piano or a language or something, but to use the internet as a way of learning that thing, to become vulnerable, to share your learning process, and to think, you know, how can I actually learn something today? How can I be vulnerable on the web? How can I do these things in a very positive way? How can I connect to not only resources but to people who will help me through this journey? And uh, in, in Dean's case, for instance, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, he actually wanted to do the same thing, so he learned how to play guitar on the web. And there was a uh, uh, one particular tweeter who was a, a music teacher, and he got his students to actually create U YouTube videos that would actually help Dean learn. So uh, while so Dean putting himself out there attracted some other you know high school students so that they could be teachers. So re re reversing these roles and really looking at how we learn online, becoming vulnerable, putting our learning moments out there. I think that's what this sort of this video to me sort of because I'm in that frame and in that mindset. It kind of epitomizes a lot of those things, and it allows us to capture those things you know, in, in, to me, a very positive way. I mean, it's probably just way too obvious, but of course, you could make a comparison of how might you teach that in a classroom, right? So uh, some kind of bubble test on you know, how you position your legs and how you stand and where you sit, and uh, then you know some kind of test of, of um, uh, accomplishment without actually getting out on the ski slope. Right. I mean, way too easy to make a comparison, but clearly there is some validity to that comparison. No, absolutely, and I think that's that's really important. And 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 learning, you know, learning social media, for instance, and learning about openness and and you know many of these other things. It's it's less about the tools and learning the tools, but it's understanding what these things actually do to us and do for us. And uh, you know, if I mean the the argument I've made many times is that, and I th I think I saw a. a, a there was a there was a, a tweet from uh, Mary Beth Hertz today as well. She she linked to an article talking about how you know blocking and filtering in schools is what we in our very restrictive environments is one of the most detrimental things we can actually do to creating you know the the idea of digital citizenship in schools. And certainly we can't do much with media literacy if most of the media that we're using outside of school is blocked. So you know those sorts of things as well. So you know thinking more about what we can actually do in our spaces. What does it mean to be a transparent learner? What does it mean to be a social learner? Um, and allowing, you know, not only educators to do that and, and advocating for educators to do that, but also, um, you know, for our students. And then extending that, uh, because I'm also a, a academic, 
Um, you may have heard of, you know, professors like Martin Weller at the Open University, um, Dana Boyd. Uh, she wrote some excellent posts on this. The idea of of, of thinking about writing in the open. Uh, my perspective, because I work at a public university, the taxpayers pay my salary. Uh, and I don't feel that it's, you know, it's a good thing to be able to lock up my, my journal articles. So when I write for a, a journal, I'm only now targeting. I only work for, I only do editorial work, I only, um, you know, advocate for uh, open access journals. So journals that will accept my work, who will still do the entire peer review process, but will only um, will not charge for these articles. They are not the university doesn't have to pay back for them. So you're not charging for the same article twice, not only in your tax dollars paying for the person who created it, but also basically giving it to a publisher and then paying uh, then your library basically buying it back so that people can have access to it. And you know, that's been something that's been really, really important uh, to me uh, as, a, as a scholar. And you're seeing more and more people do things like open access, uh, open, um, uh, open access oaths where they promise that they will never uh, publish or do any editorial work or work on boards, for instance, on any journal that's not an open access journal. So I'm hoping more and more people will continue to do that. I think it's incredibly important. Um, I had one of these aha moments of why that's important not too long ago. Um, my daughter had pneumonia. Of course, everyone on Twitter gets to know about my, when my daughter's sick or when I'm sick. I've been suffering from a man cold for the last month, so I may cough by the end of this um, session. But I was sitting in the hospital, and uh, so I, I was wondering about the, the, uh, the, uh, when my daughter, my young daughter had pneumonia. And uh, I DM'd with a, pharma a pharmacist, and the pharmacist actually gave me some information about what had been prescribed to my daughter. So, so I had that connection for one thing, which is really cool that I can actually direct message on Twitter someone that I actually trust quite well. Of course, trust is different in different levels. And this person, I actually have to ha I know this person very well. So she gave me uh, direct links to um, articles on the particular their antibiotic that they were going to give me, uh, whether it was good or not, whether it was important for this. And of course, when I actually tried clicking on that, um, it went to this closed access journal that I, my university didn't even have access to. And the article, if for anyone off the street would, to, to get it, would, you'd have to pay, I think, something like $50 or something to get this article. And of course, there's hundreds of articles that you can get. But I was thinking at that moment, like, why don't more people like not just university professors, but anyone have access to really important public data, things that have been developed by university professors, whether it's medical or social sciences or whatever else, why don't we have more general access to these things? And I think it's just a crime that we actually lock up this information. Criminal in the sense that um, that we're, you know, our governments, are, our taxpayers are paying double for these things in one thing, but also that we don't have access to data that could ensure and help the health of others who read it uh, if they were able to interpret it in different ways. So I think we just need more access to knowledge on a number of different fronts. So a lot of what you described there, I can hear people responding by saying, you know, I just don't have the freedom to do that. Um, uh, I met somebody the other day who I was talking about the sort of the gift economy of the web. And she said, well, I've already gifted by working for so little money. That's my gift. And I thought, well, okay, this is really a hard message, this idea that we're going to only work with uh, open journals or we're going to, uh, you know, really sort of 
jump in and dive in in the in the gift economy. How do you respond to people who say that? Just I just can't even imagine doing that. I mean, it's 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 not as simple as you know. Everyone should uh, decide to give everything to an open access journal. In, in the social sciences, I think it's rather easy for us to do. In, in many cases, now there are people that you know there are authors and they create textbooks and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and they make some money on it, but all, if you've looked at textbook royalties and what most textbook authors make, even sort of major textbooks, they're not making a whole lot of money. Certainly the money is going primarily to the publisher. But where I find the value is, and, and I think if you look at the open source economy where, where value is being made. So for instance, Moodle has continued to be free. WordPress has continued to be free. But there's entire economies around things like WordPress and things around Moodle. Um, Moodle Rooms, which is one of the biggest providers of Moodle access, had just been bought by Blackboard the other day. But there are economies outside of this. And I think the same argument is made in the music industry that you know, music should be free and people should just you know, go out and work and do you know, perform and that sort of thing like it used to be, whether it was like that or not. But I, I think there's just a number of different ways that we could work together. And I think you just defer services. So I, I still, um, for instance, if I, if I speak somewhere, depending on the organization, uh, I might charge a, a speaker fee or that sort of thing. And, and there is, so, so I, I basically had opportunities, whether it's monetary or just the experience that I get to go to a different place, for instance. Everything I've done in my career, I've given away. So the value has been deferred to perhaps doing things or experiencing things a bit differently. So depending on what I'm doing and what I'm giving, so for instance, if I were to write a book, there's no doubt that I would not charge for it. It would be open access. But uh, someone mentioned Lessig, for instance. Lessig uh, wrote a book, I think it was Code 2, where he actually had the entire kind of community, people who read it, would actually edit the book. And then what he did was, because the community really developed and helped and edited his book, he released it as a dual licensed book. So he actually sold it on Amazon.com. So he did that sort of side of things. But he also made it open access. So anyone who wanted to buy it, they could actually buy it. And many people want to do that versus actually get it for free. So someone who wants to get it for free, that's great. And, and that's the, our, the, I think that's the model for much open access. That you can still, there's a service around packaging these things, selling them, uh, delivering it to your door versus giving the, the content away for free. And I think depending on the market, there are some that are going to pay, some that are not. And as, as Carolyn says, you know, Cory Doctorow does that the same with his novels. And so there's a number of people who are doing that sort of thing as well. So looking at you know, uh, where the economy fits in all of this, that knowledge still can be free and there can still be a vibrant economy. People still can make money, um, but the money just doesn't come directly from content. In, a, in an age of abundance, when there's so much content, it well, what we often look at, the value really comes from what we give away. Because the one thing that we don't have a lot of, and Rheingold would probably agree with this, is the idea of attention. So when you give something away, it actually in some ways gains value because there's more attention put onto it versus something that's sitting over here, you know, $150 for a textbook. Um, the first thing I tell my students, because I don't require, I've been textbook free for 11 years now, well, 10 and a half years. Um, 
and my students will are quite happy with that. But you know, I, I make sure that they know that this was the this was the textbook you could have had in this class. It was a hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy five dollars. So uh, I want that sort of work back from you. <laughs> this is you know I'm basically selling you, you, you saving you one hundred and seventy five bucks. So what are you going to do for your own learning in this class? Uh, so hopefully, I mean, it just it's not something I really expect, but it's. It's just thinking about content being free and, and out there. Now, it works really well in my subject area. Others would argue that maybe they don't have the same sort of quality resources in their argument, in their area. Now, I don't know about every subject area, but I think in many cases uh, there are sufficient resources, if not in a, probably a, like a Barry Schwartz's paradox of choice in most of, our, uh, in most of our subject areas in terms of what we can use and are able to access. You know, part of this discussion that doesn't often get brought up, but I think is valuable, is that when you are passionately pursuing something you care about, the the money actually takes on a different role. And so, I think part part of the story here is people who are willing to say, you know, I don't I don't necessarily have to have the standard of living I had before because I'm doing something I really care about, or I'm even willing to experiment just because I want to be doing something that I really believe in. I think that's absolutely great. I mean, I think at this moment in time, I mean, I'm very happy I can provide for my family. I can still do what I absolutely love. Now, for, for others who are not making very much or who are, you know, perhaps uh, earlier in their careers, they may not be at the point. Um, you know, there's a different, there's a big divide, say, in educators for in Canada, the U.S., throughout Europe, in terms of what people are in Australia. I think we have some people from Australia and other countries uh, here. But there's a huge difference in terms of what a teacher will make, and certainly how a teacher is valued in those cases. So I, I think it's really important to understand, you know, when do you actually get to the point where you're able to do those things? And so, I, you know, when I talk about this philosophy, I, I kind of do it in this ideal sense. I would never, you know, if someone decides, you know, they want to make the right textbooks for a living and pay, and charge for these things, I absolutely support that. I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, but in my particular case, I just don't think that's an option. I just don't think that any excess of money that I would make and. and the truth is, I wouldn't make money in that case. In most cases, but but for the most part, you know, when you're comfortable and you're happy with what you do, and you're spreading a message, and and you're affecting people, and you know, you're making a difference in so many ways. I think money just becomes this whole other thing that's just not nearly as important. Uh, and I think that's that's really a good thing. But not everyone gets there, and certainly, uh, people value money quite a bit differently. But I, I think. If you start thinking as you know, I'm going to create content, and this content is going to be amazing. I'm going to charge big money for it. That those days are uh, those days are absolutely gone. I mean, if you just think about, we used to complain, wow, that you know that software that I just bought was $150 or $70. Now can people complain when they have? Well, I don't know if I want to buy that 99 cent app. Like the entire industry has changed. The only thing that beat Napster with iTunes, the only reason that, that iTunes is such a big force now is that the only way you can compete with something that is free is something that is really easy and cheap. 
and iTunes, that platform, was really easy and cheap. So there's that offset of guilt. I mean, torrenting, um, when people torrent music, for instance, uh, they have to face the fact that they're going to have a lot of bandwidth. Now that there might be surveillance in, in some of the U.S. states now, you're starting looking at some surveillance by your ISPs, for instance. So you have to deal with that whole gamut. There are people like Jamie Rosette Thomas, who was sued by for $1.2 million uh, in, uh, I think it was, um, I want to say, North Dakota, but it may not be, but somewhere in the U.S. Um, you know, you have lawsuits. You may download a virus. So people perhaps don't want to do that sort of stuff. They'd much rather to go to iTunes and click, I'll pay that 99 cents. So that's how you can compete. But if you put a lot of excessive, um, you know, ways, you know, the one-click purchase thing is such a huge thing when, when dealing with, a, with an economy of abundance and an economy of free. So I want to be really careful about how I say this, but I have some friends who are educators who have lost their jobs, and they have a very difficult time doing anything other than waiting for another job. Uh, and I have the sense that this may be kind of a part of a larger story of the lack of entrepreneurial activity or um, impetus within the sort of existing structures of education. In open teaching, Ultimately, the goal for the student is for the student to become self-directed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things is that, um, and, and I'll give you the, the, the course that I actually taught um, is, and see if I can actually bring it up. Um, it's actually at H, uh, ECI 831.ca. And I did actually happen to see one of my students who's here, Tanis, I believe, because uh, I noticed it in the list here. So Tanis is a former student who actually took the thanks. So Tanis, I didn't pay her to say that, but honestly, but she says it was the best course. And Kevin's here, awesome. So two of my former ECNI 831 students. So obviously, um, they're here. They're not totally sick of me that they actually had an entire semester. And even you know rented here uh, was part of it as well. Uh, yeah, not paid and so on. Allison, uh, yeah, Allison, are you the Allison from my course? Because there's several, but uh, absolutely. Oh, very, very cool. Um, so what's neat about that is, yeah, I've got a bit of a fan club today. What I, what I really, what this course was about was basically, uh, usually I get about 20 to 25 students. These are graduate level students, and they take part of this course. But then we invite the world at some point. Now, I've done this in different ways, and sometimes students don't want the world invited on the first class, so usually we wait a couple of classes. And then we basically allow people to sign up for network mentors. And I'm not sure if it really works to be network mentors or not, but we just want to bring people in, and we want to give them a role, and we want them to stay. And as you can see here, there are uh, several people that actually uh, were part of the course officially. I mean, they got a credit. And then there were other people who took the course just because they wanted to. And some people came every week. Some people came every once in a while. But they got to do their own thing. A big part of what I wanted to do as a class is allow people and encourage them to develop personal learning networks that would, that would live beyond the course. And one of the things that I'm getting in the data in a course like this is that although we had excellent speakers, they brought in someone via Illuminate every single week, similar to what we did here, all of these people were volunteer. They came in, they gave a fantastic uh, you know, presentation. My students were part of that. We invited other people from, uh, from the world that, who came as well. And then, but 
But the content wasn't really the important thing. The thing was the experience, the experience that we could actually learn side by side with people who weren't in that course, people who are lifelong learners already, people who wanted to come just for the sake of participating in the course. And then all of a sudden those people are having a conversation just like they're having here. And then that conversation might extend to Twitter and then they connect there. Then they might have a Skype conversation. What's really, really important about this whole idea is that they move beyond thinking about this as a course. And so I, I call this We've often talked about open educational resources when you think that people create these creative commons, copyleft type resources that anyone can use, but I call these open educational experiences. How can you actually create an experience, take a graduate level, typically closed course, or an undergraduate level, or even a classroom experience and create the K-12, how do you make a part of that? How, you, how do you thin your walls? How do you allow people to come in in different ways to experience part of that course, but not just to be people who are peeping toms that look at what's going on in the classroom, but people that are integral to that experience. Make that part of the pedagogy. Make that part of the experience itself, that these people are important to your learning. And then when the course disappears, you still have the people, you still have the connections. And it's sort of, I, I've used the term before. Um, like when you go to a conference, for instance, and George, my brother, uh, and I have used this term at a conference I think we did in Shanghai, but it's the idea that, you know, back when we were younger, we used to have this, you know, you, you'd go to summer camp, for instance, and you'd go to, uh, you know, summer camp and you'd spend a great week or, or a couple of weeks with some people that you would never ever see again. So you built these great connections, and then all of a sudden there just wasn't the facility to do that. And we do that in things like Blackboard and Moodle and other learning management systems that we build these connections. We work so hard to build these connections in these learning communities and then we just say, let's archive it. And all these connections are totally gone. No one has our, uh, access to the materials they're created, their conversations. Everything just vaporizes. But Twitter, for instance, feels to me like summer camp for life where you can actually use, you can move basically beyond that. So the communities that you build, it's so important that you build communities not only in the course but outside of the course and that's where they continue to happen beyond. Uh, Peggy's talking about ed camps, for instance. You know, finally ways for, you know, students can, or, or teachers can start looking at their own professional development in more richer ways. They can take control of their PD in different ways and that's what this is all about. And this movement that's happening where more and more of this that you're seeing is just incredible to me. And this is very much part of this whole idea of social learning, open learning. Um, and I think if institutions are going to thrive in this environment, they need to do more things around opening parts of their courses to them. And this is beyond things like MIT and Stanford and all of the big Ivy League institutions giving their content for free. I think you're seeing a movement now that more people are starting to give away the experience and so what you get at the institution is the relationship building. Certainly there's content and expertise, I'm not in any way saying expertise is dead, but I think you move well beyond this and you need to make this part of the experience and this is how you inspire independent, autonomous and lifelong learners. So I'm thinking that the phrase social learning actually came from Albert Bandura at Stanford. And if I'm right, it was intended to sort of be a pushback to behaviorist thinking that the student would sort of try to emulate the teacher 
but we clearly think of social learning as being uh, as much about uh, peers that we learn with. Um, how do you describe social learning, and is it different than, say, that Albert Bandura description? Yeah, yeah, I think I mean Bander's description is something that actually has been really important to me in terms of me understanding a lot of this as well. And actually, he's from uh, Alberta, Canada, so he's a Canadian, not born too far away. But then he ended up in Stanford, and he was uh, really uh, one of the most important people in terms of this idea of, of social learning. And I think, I mean, that it was the beginning of it that. I mean, just the statement that learning is social, uh, a lot of people would not understand that in the same way today. I think what, what's happened is, I mean, and he talked a lot about self-efficacy and the whole idea of social cognitive theory um, agency and, and the other things. But I, th I think just the idea that learning is a social act is something that we haven't done very well as educators. Um, there was an incident at my child, kid's school not too long ago when I think I put her in grade one, and the teacher said something like, because um, uh, I, I said something about the desk arrangement, and, and she had said something like, um, uh, oh yeah, kids, oh, I asked about socialization, and, and, kid, and she said that, well, socialization is for recess. And I thought that was, it, it kind of really threw me off and made me quite sad about my kid's education for a while. And I think I came to terms later with the teacher in, in many ways. Yeah, every teacher's here being in, in my class. But I mean, it's that whole idea that we can't socialize in kids. Uh, Stephen Collis from Australia, he has a fantastic, I think he has a, a post something like the most audacious um, classroom I have ever seen. If anyone can Google that, uh, Steve, Coll Steve Collis, I think he goes by Happy Steve on, on Twitter. He has this sort of uh, this video of this high school classroom, and you'd never know it to be high school. And these kids are all over the place. It's just this full of anarchy. But these kids, you know they're learning, and they're learning in different ways compared to some of the high school classrooms that I, I visit. I visit I, I'm very lucky to be able to visit uh, classrooms quite often in my own city. And some are fantastic. There's absolutely. Thank Thank you very much, Steve. Um, uh, you know that sort of idea. If you just look at that video, just looking at the anarchy in this high school classroom, where you typically don't see those social relationships, and that's really kind of what I see as social learning to that regard. Now, the thing that's changed since Bandera's time is really the technologies that we have now. Typically, we saw networks as being very limited to our school. When I started my teaching, I felt incredibly isolated, and there was really nothing I could do about that. Now it's very simple to use things like Twitter, your own personal blog. Like I believe that every teacher needs to have some sort of space where they can actually showcase their work, their thinking, but also the, the work of their kids. To be able to actually use that to show this is what's happening in my classroom. This is my window to our classroom, and this, we want to connect with you in different ways. So I think every classroom needs some sort of window at some, and I'm not saying that you need a 24-7 type uh, you know, webcam that you're you know, watching every kid's move, but there needs to be some way for kids to get out, whether it's via Skype, whether it's some, using something like kidblog.org to have kids blogging. Um, one of my favorite bloggers, uh, Kathy Cassidy from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, many of you probably know her here, grade one teacher has visits from around the world, but that classroom, this grade one classroom with 
with so many hits and the stuff that they're doing and watching the kids' literacy transform in front of you as you read their blogs from September to June and watching their language improve as you go through and, and watching her scaffold their learning is amazing to me. And that's so incredibly important. And now when you go into grade two in that same school, maybe they'll have that experience, maybe not. But I think it's really important that we're able to do that. And if you can do it in grade one, and if Steve Collis can do it in those high school classrooms in, in Australia, you can do this anywhere. Middle years is the easy place in some cases. Uh, some people would argue, obviously, but uh, and I've taught all, uh, uh, I've taught, myself, I've only taught from grade six to grade 12. But I think, uh, I think you can do computing, and I can think you can do social learning throughout, the, throughout uh, you know, pre-K to university. So it, uh, is there a difference, or, t or tell us what the differences or similarities are between K-12 and higher ed in this regard? Well, I think, I think obviously the big things are, some of the issues are policy uh, in terms of what we can do. There's certainly still hugely restrictive policies uh, in K-12 education. Filters are obviously something that I've advocated for something that needs to go. Um, at the very least, going into a school where I see filters, the same filters that are happening to kids are the same filters that are happening to teachers. And I think Scott McCloud years back created a photo that said something like, um, you know, you trust that it was sort of a, a pr someone talking to uh, his administration, like a teacher talking to his administration saying something like, uh, you trust us with our kids, but you don't trust us with the internet. Um, and just thinking of that idea, I mean, there's something, a really deep question there that why aren't all teachers allowed to use YouTube or Facebook? This is the profession. These are professionals. And professionals should be able to make their choices about their content, choices about the methods that they use, choices, that, you know, choices around how they actually teach kids. Now, certainly, curriculum is an oppressive force in many cases. And we have to, uh, we have to use that as some sort of guide in, in many cases. In some cases, it's less oppressive than in other cases. But I, I think policy and those things are really important. Now, if you look at Kathy Cassie's blog and Peggy, uh, the second link that Peggy is actually linked to there is, if you look at that, that space would not be the same without being able to see the faces of kids. She has full parent permission. She has parent participation in those spaces. She allows those kids to be seen. And we have so many other places where just the kids' experience is totally gone. The only time we ever see these kids is if they make a big mistake on YouTube. And that's the only time you'll ever see a record of these kids being online. And when they do, that's the only way you can actually find them. They have no other Googleable sort of uh, identity. It's only the bad things that they end up doing. And the reason they're doing these bad things is they haven't been able to model any sort of positive uh, identity on the internet in any other way. And if it starts in grade one, thinking that you can be viewed around the world, that we can be seen, and that we can, in some ways, control our privacy. In some ways, we can't. Um, there's, there's just, I mean, just thinking about that. So the, so the biggest thing, I think, is policy, what we're able to do with students. Um, of course, when, when students come to university, uh, they, they have the right, I mean, in most cases, terms of service at least start at 13, at the age of 13, uh, 18 in some very rare cases. But all my university students can make the choice of using WordPress.com, or they can get their own domain, or they can do just about anything they want. Identity and those sorts of things aren't an issue. But ideally, I would love to 
see students, uh, you know, in high school or middle years start to at least develop their digital identity much sooner to have portfolios, to have an ease of transition. So they know the tools. Not only do they know the tools as they move along, they've started to develop networks through high school, and they've also been able to, you know, really think about their identity before it's too late. I think um, having. You know, 18-year-olds come in to become teachers. We have a four-year program where I work, a uh, four-year program to uh, bachelors of education. Um, you know, students still, when they're coming in this year, students do Facebook, they knew YouTube, and now this year for the first time they know Pinterest, and that's really all the experience that they know from you know from the digital types of technology. They know a little bit about privacy, but not really how to handle their privacy controls. But mostly about you know they they know how to untag pictures and that sort of thing. But for the most part, they don't really have a sense of what should be private, what shouldn't be private, and no sense of the idea of digital footprint or digital identity. And, and so I think that's something that really needs to change. We need to talk about these things much earlier, but we're not going to do that with the incredibly restrictive environments that we have in most K-12 schools. What about um, open teaching and social learning in higher ed? Um, I mean, yes, fewer restrictions, yes, more of an adult environment and the ability to see kind of learning take place. But are most students in higher ed institutions having the experience that you would want them to have? Um, typically, I, I mean, I wouldn't. I, I don't think so. I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm fairly um, biased in terms of uh, you know what, how much openness I put out there, and probably I put too much out there at times. And I guess I'm, I, and sometimes I do it for effect more than anything. And and much of it is because I have the privilege to be able to put more out there without detrimental effect. I don't think we can speak to all people like that. I don't think um, university students are having um, the same type of uh, experience in, in universities. I think universities are still continue to be uh, traditional. Now I'm going to actually, just because you notice that almost everything I do is triggered by a tweet I read, a blog I read. Will Richardson blogged something today which just kind of, um, uh, six hours ago, he says, can we stop saying that collaboration, problem solving, and critical thinking are 21st century skills, Kid need to, kids need to succeed in the future. Uh, always, it's always needed. So the idea that we always say collaboration, problem solving, and critical thinking are these 21st century skills that kids are going to need in the future, that we often don't think about these things being really important now. Uh, my brother says, I said this at a recent presentation, is let's not think about a five-year plan for our students. What do they need to know right now? And I think university students in general are not getting those types of experiences. Um, I mean, if I think of my high school experience, the things that I can remember, there's a handful. I remember how to do FOIL for quadratic equations. I, I, I remember uh, provinces and, and capitals and that sort of thing. There's very few things that I still remember. Like, I haven't had to use quadratic equations yet. <laughs> Thanks, Mike, for apologizing for the math teachers. <laughs> but I mean, those sorts of things I kind of remember and they've been ingrained in me so much. But for the most part, I don't often use these. But I, but I often think that you know, much of learning those things is just for the sake of learning new things and having to learn new things in practice. And certain things stick with you. But when we start looking at those ideas of collaboration and problem solving, those things are just not happening in universities. I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a high profile case 
a few years ago about Facebook. This was at Ryerson University. Um, and what happened was there was one person who started a study group. This was just Facebook, just sort of came in. If someone finds it, it's yeah, Ryerson University. I think it was plagiarism, and it had to do with Facebook. So those would be my key terms. But basically what happened is this person, the, the student that started this, got academic misconduct charges for every single person who entered that group. So I can't remember how many people he had in this study group that he created on Facebook. 148. Thank you, Steve. So there's 148 people, and then he got 148 charges of academic misconduct because he started this Facebook group. And so it's yeah, it's really kind of interesting to think about this story um, and to think of how different we think of collaboration, where we we really value group or individual learning but we don't and and we pay lip service to collaborative learning but when it comes to the institutional environment we always test you and only you uh, rather than saying okay I'm rather than filling out this bubble form let's give you live to the internet and I want you to solve this problem but rather than relying on just what you know in your head right now what are you going to do? How are you going to extend? Let's test the limits of your network. So you're going to solve this problem. You have unlimited resources because that's what's out there in the real world. You can use your Twitter network, your Facebook friends, whatever, solve this problem in the way that you would do it in the real world. No one solves a problem these days with, with filling out bubbles. And I think that's really the difference between what we see in a university or even a K-12 education versus the industry that is available to us, the networks that are available to us outside of these really restrictive networks. It's great to know things, but it's more important to know how to learn more things and to connect to knowledge and to connect to people who are knowledge, you know, people who know things, I guess, in that sense. And I mean, what, what George Siemens would call, um, you know, wayfinding and sense making. And that's really, really important. I just don't really see, think that's happening anywhere in most universities. So I want to play the devil's advocate. Um, because I feel as though this narrative around um, this kind of engaged learning, uh, exploration, uh, developing critical thinking skills, that, that this is not actually a new narrative, but it's often the secondary narrative. Um, and I'll use the phrases agency and compliance, that the agency narrative is kind of secondary to the larger compliance narrative, and that politically compliance tends to overrule agency. If this isn't a new story, and you can disagree with me, what makes this time different, or what makes us believe that agency could actually become the primary narrative? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I agree with you totally that this is, I mean, schools are around this whole idea of compliance. And, and I think democracies, in many cases, or our current democracies, which are often far from democracies, don't want critical thinkers. We pay lift service to the idea of critical thinkers. But in terms of the way that we look at in our current governments, there is this, um, we're able to kind of stay within this sort of, this. I guess this this stage I guess that we're in because we don't have the critical thinkers that we perhaps should have in those senses. Uh, so I mean, if you look at I mean history of these movements, I mean I think it was in um, you know you look at Illich's 1971 stuff uh, around you know the the whole idea of learning webs. You can look at Postman's early stuff or uh, McLuhan. Uh, I mean a lot of these theorists from those days uh, in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of this stuff has been happened 
has happened, uh, you know, um, well before we've talked about these things. I don't think ever before, though, we've had this sense of networks and what this can actually do. I think the Arab Spring, for instance, is something that's so incredibly different that we just haven't been able to experience some of these same things around networks. If you look at the story of Coney 2012, now there's a lot of bad things around that, but to think from a social media marketing campaign is that, you know, if you do social media very well, and there's a number of things that was done very well about that particular campaign from a campaign perspective to get any particular message out to to the masses. I mean, from a social media perspective, you can learn a lot from that story. Now, from the narrative story and from uh, so from a social justice perspective, there's probably stuff that you can learn as well, but probably not all in the positive. But I do think that almost anyone today can have a voice. And I think this has really changed as we moved into this whole idea of participatory culture. Uh, the stuff that you know, Jenkins talks about, for instance, is looking at how we can actually have a voice. So someone without voice today can have voice. Not everyone. I think there's still people that are more vulnerable and that are continue to be voiceless. But I think the technologies allow this for, um, in a way, and the whole idea that the infrastructure of the network in itself, that messages cannot be blocked in the ways that they used to be. There is no direct way of blocking messages, that the Internet itself is designed in a way that things, messages will go around things that try to blog them. I mean, this is built in, into the infrastructure around it. So I think now that we've actually moved into this more participatory age, I think that we can actually uh, do more with this and that, um, that perhaps these failed attempts at reform uh, which have been often quashed by governments and reform movements and curriculum writers and all sorts of others and p politicians who have kind of kept us in this place because they're scared of this sort of um, of this particular practice and the freedoms that we have. I think there's no getting around this. Now, there's a lot of things that we have to be scared of. I think. Uh, if you look at things like SOPA, if you look at uh, in Canada, we have a really scary bill, Bill C11, that looks at. Um, uh, you know, things around our new copyright act and there's a surveillance act and there's a number of things that would enable ISPs, for instance, to block particular people from the internet that will not, not allow us to use particular tools to, uh, you know, there would be surveillance and a number of things. So there are scary things from the internet, uh, but I think this is part of that same sort of pattern that as we gain new freedoms, there are always going to be people that want to get rid of these freedoms because it does lead to a more critical society. The things that are happening and have happened in China, for instance, for years are happening here in our own countries uh, from a number of perspectives. They just seem to be a bit more subtle and a bit more slow. But I think we just have to continue to push for these freedoms. And when we see these freedoms being blocked in any way, I mean, SOPA, the SOPA activism that happened around that is probably one of the most incredible things that happened in terms of web activism. This is where it actually worked. And it was one of the, the largest web uh, I guess series of web activism that actually changed something. And perhaps it's only for a while now, but at least we know that this can happen. And I think we have to continue to keep the message out that our internet freedoms are more important than anything because they allow everything else to happen. Our internet freedoms are the basis for all of the other freedoms that come after it. Alec, I keep watching these massive online courses like from Stanford, and there are a couple coming out of Stanford, one inside of Stanford and one now outside. And the sort of the promises that this will be the most engaging education ever. 
are they making those promises because of good social learning support, or is this a little bit of a red herring? Yeah, I'm not really liking a lot of the stuff that's coming out of uh, out of the big. I think they're looking at. I, I think what you're seeing now is that open education and you know things like MOOCs, for instance, um, they've they've gained a little bit of ground um, in terms of a monetary model. I'm not sure that there is a monetary model around these things. There's a learning model, absolutely. But what what you're seeing now is these institutions wanting to make some sort of money off them uh, and basically pay lip service to some of these things. So I think they're in so many ways changing some of the, or, or never really looking closely at what are the sort of the, the most important tenets of learning in the open and network learning. And so much of it has to do with being able to be independent and autonomous around our own learning. And I think once institutions start to brand a type of open learning or whether it's a MOOC or whatever else, and I think they're, they're automatically doing um, things a bit wrong. I mean, you can look at Jared Stein. He talked about years ago when um, he talked, uh, the term he used around um, when you know, in the university started to open up Facebook groups and invite students in, he called it the creepy treehouse. So you know, the idea that this stuff works well in informal and non-formal learning environments, like open education works fine. The Twitter things that you learn uh, fine when they work organically, but once the institutions tinker with this too much and they start to change what's really important here, they may change it so much that it no longer resembles what it was supposed to be in, in the first place. And that really is this whole idea of autonomous grassroots learning. I think learning is always going to happen to the institutions. I don't think learning institutions will ever sort of totally disappear, but I do think that what you're going to see is this entire new model will grow up the side that, that formal informal learning will continue to become and, and gain um, more more precedent, I think, and 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 acclaim and and power, I think, beside beside this institution in many ways. And and if you think about, I mean, the parallel would be railways never disappeared, but you know the airplanes uh, and the airline system grew up, you know, right beside it. And I can't remember who made that uh, observation, but I think it's a fairly common one. This idea that two systems don't necessarily replace themselves; they can live. Uh, live beside each other and do things quite differently. And I think that's what you're going to see in informal and non-formal learning environments. I don't think that the large institutions that are doing these on these grand scales can do it right. I think with a lot of this stuff, we have the fear of going back to this whole idea of computer-aided instruction and those types of things that did not work in ed tech in the 1960s. And they're kind of not looking at the stuff and saying, well, no, this stuff didn't work for a reason. We have to realize that massive produced uh, the scale wasn't the most important thing around MOOCs. It was the informal piece of it. It was the ability to uh, to be open with this kind of learning, to drive our own learning. It has nothing to do with the scale. Uh, in, in the MOOC, the massive part is probably the part that I, I like least, but the open online course is something that will live forever, I think. But we have robot grading. <laughs> yeah, we do. And I, and, I, and I suppose you could use something like, uh, uh, I, I use, uh, I can't remember what it is, it's something in Google Spreadsheets that allows me to grade things really quickly and that sort of thing. And, I, of course, yeah, they've got the artificial intelligence that does this. Yeah, Fluberoo. Thank you very much, Peggy. You can use Fluberoo to you know, mark your tests. And it's really cool and stuff, but when you assess things that are done by even artificial intelligence, at this point, I think 
there are, you're assessing things that just aren't that significant. So I, I, that stuff sort of scares me at this point. I think any significant assessment has to be done by not only individuals, but by groups of individuals, by our communities. I like the agency aspect of these independent learning opportunities, but I'm troubled by the lack of recognition of the importance of the relationship in the social. Uh, what do you mean, the, the, the uh, relationship of the social? Sorry, I, I see. Well, so I really like the fact that, that, you know, that there are all these opportunities now to find things you want to learn about and to participate in learning. But I'm troubled by the often the absence of understanding of the importance of the relationship in learning. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I, I think that's so incredibly important is that, you know, none of the stuff that I've done over the last and I can go back to my dissertation. Uh, anything over the last six, seven years, nothing I've done here I've done alone. I've done basically absolutely everything through networks. I ask questions every day of my network, whether it's, you know, help me with this Google Doc or do you have thoughts on this or that. Like I could not possibly think about going back to a place where I sat there in books. I mean, books were a kind of of social network that you know where you are connecting to knowledge, but my my true aha moment came at one point. Uh, it was my first PhD course, and I remember the assignment was to critique an article, and it was an article that was written ten years earlier, and I had to critique this article. And then what I decided at that point was basically, um, you know, why should I just critique this article in by myself to think about this article by myself? And I, I suppose I could read other things around it, but I just picked up the phone at the time. Twitter, this is pre-Twitter, but I picked up the phone and I phoned the author of this article and I spent about an hour and a half talking to this guy and I thought, this is fantastic. This is the way that we need to critique articles. The, the question I asked him was like, okay, well, this is 10 years later, you wrote this a long time ago, I'm, I'm critiquing your article, I'm a PhD student. Um, what would what would you say today? How would you critique your own article? And that's where the conversation started. Now, not everything that he said ended up in that paper, but that was such an important piece because it opened it up, uh, you opened it up so much to me in my understanding, not only about that article and about learning, but it just how how networks are so vitally important to network uh, to, to learning, and I think that's incredibly so important. So I think that's. I mean, it's important. I mean, networks of books were always an important thing, but now you can actually reach out to that author in so many ways. And we're often intimidated to, you know, to make that call or to send that email or to, you know, send a DM or a tweet. But we can do that. And if we fail, big deal. We can try again. Uh, it just seems to work very well. So I think networks are so incredibly vital to my learning that it's so part, so much part of the, what we call social learning today. And I think so many people have seen that. You can see the vibrancy on Twitter on a daily basis. Um, it's just a matter of time until more and more people start to do it that way. Now, it's not successful for everybody. And I think we have to acknowledge that. But in many cases, people have failed to start because there was not an understanding of these things, or they didn't get right into the right networks, or maybe there wasn't the same effort. But in some cases, there's other reasons that I think we have to address. But I think social learning is certainly here to stay. Alec, I've broken my own rule and gone over time. You have I a family. That's the whole point. <laughs> I'm <laughs> clapping for you. It's so hard to find the applause button in this new version of Collaborate, but it's under the smiley face and then go to applause. If you raise your hand, it's fine. It does the same thing. It lets Alec know how much we appreciate him. This has been really, really fun for me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the conversation. 
uh, Alec, really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, everybody. I really appreciate it. Thanks for spending so, so much time with me and letting me rant again about the things I really care about. So uh, if you want to connect, uh, I'm Carosa on Twitter. Uh, thanks. And if you have any pushback or uh, you know anything in terms of anything I said, or if you just want to explore these things together, uh, let me know. And thanks again for being here tonight. Thanks, Alex. Coming up in the future of education, Thursday night, Dick Gale, Unappreciative Inquiry and Positive Deviance, and then next week, Howard Rheingold and Joseph Grinning. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Alec. So, so much fun. Take care, everybody. Bye now. Thanks, Steve.